Hello and welcome to IFG Live for today's Institute for Government event on how local leaders can help England to reach net zero, which is also the subject of a report we published in February called Net Zero and Devolution. The Institute for Government is delighted to be working in partnership with the Royal Society to bring you this event. So many thanks to the RS for their kind support of our work. My name is Akash Pound. I'm Programme Director for Devolution here at the IFG and I'll be chairing today's conversation with our excellent panellists who I'll be introducing in a moment. We'll be discussing what progress the country has made so far with reducing carbon emissions, the state of the government strategy for reaching net zero by the target date of 2050, and then really focusing on the specific role that local leaders, metro mayors, local council leaders can play, for instance, via their control of transport, housing, retrofit, skills budgets. And we'll also be talking about whether further devolution could help England cities and regions and the country as a whole, therefore, to go further and faster with decarbonisation. So thanks very much to you all for joining and, and thank you to our four speakers for spending the time to talk us through these questions. So first of all, warm welcome to Professor Joanna Haig, who's Fellow of the Royal Society, our partners on this event, a research fellow at Imperial College London and formerly co-director of the Grantham Institute, also at Imperial College. Joe, thanks for joining us. Thanks. And uh, uh, second, our speaker, Joining us from here at the IFG, my colleague Rosa Hodgkin, who works on policymaking and net zero um, and previously worked as an analyst for the climate think tank Influence Map. Hi, Rosa, how are you doing? Great to be here. Great, thanks. Thanks a lot for, for joining us. Um, third, welcome to Shirley Rodriguez, who is London's deputy mayor for Environment and Energy, a post she's held since 2016. And in that role, she's working to help deliver the Mayor of London's uh, environment strategy for the city. Shirley, delighted to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And finally, we're joined by Ed Cox, who works closely with Metro Mayor Andy Street as Executive Director for Strategy economy and net zero at the West Midlands Combined Authority. Ed, hello, good to see you again. So I'll be uh, putting questions to our panellists in a moment. Uh, to our online audience, those of you watching live, you can submit questions to any individual panellist or the panel as a whole via the Q&A function on Teams and I will weave some of the questions into the conversation. You can also upvote other people's suggestions for what I should ask. And, and do please say who you are and where you're from if you don't mind being identified. Um, the event's being recorded and it'll be uploaded to our website, our YouTube and podcast channels um, shortly afterwards. We're also live tweeting the event from the IFG events account using the hashtag IFG net zero. Um, OK, so let's get started. Um, so for Professor Haig, Joe, I'd like to, to start with you. Um, the UK has reduced its, its carbon emissions by nearly 50% now since uh, the early 1990s. 
largely due to a big shift in the way that the country produces electricity. So shift away from 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 coal uh, powered uh, coal power stations in particular. Um, but given where we are now, and the the mix of of carbon emissions that the country still has to eliminate. What do you see as the biggest challenges we face if the country is to reach that 2050 target? And, and as it stands now, do you think we're, we are on track to meet that? Well, as you say, we, we need to reach net zero by 2050. And if nobody's clear about that, it's because carbon dioxide in particular is very long lived in the atmosphere. And once it gets in there, it'll stay there. And, it, and the surface temperature responds to that. So the more CO2 in the atmosphere, the warmer it gets. So we need to stop emitting in order to stop the temperature rising. That's a very clear thing to do. And to limit global warming to one and a half or two degrees, which is what um, the UN Interplan on Climate Change said is necessary to avoid the worst uh, responses to climate change. Um, we need to uh, adapt the whole of the uh, activity and strong action by everybody. Um, national governments, devolved governments, private sector, local government, civil society, communities, households and all the economic sectors. So in the UK, we were sort of ahead of the game for a while. And um, earlier in the century, we established um, six carbon budgets, six five year carbon budgets, each set centred on um, 20, from 2010, centred on 2010, 2015, 2020, etc. They're enshrined in law, so the government is required to meet them. And the first three have actually been met. We're now in the middle of the fourth carbon budget, where it looks like we're sort of on track to meet that. Um, the fifth one's a bit more shaky, but they're really not on track to meet the sixth carbon budget. Um, which is around 2035, and this is a real concern. It's to it's to reduce the, the emissions by 78% by that time. So um, a huge transformation is necessary. Um, outside the electricity um, sector, um, which we've already heard about, then annual emissions need to be reduced by 4.7% per year in order to meet that target. And at the moment, it's 1.2% per year. So you can see we're nowhere near on track um, to meet that fourth, uh, to meet the sixth carbon budget. And it will need um, action in uh, all the sector, transport, industry, buildings, heating, all, all the rest of them to, to do stuff. The Climate Change Committee, which is a government advisory body, has suggested that um, uh, agriculture and land use policy is particularly badly designed or not at all and also there needs to be much more attention to the planning system but all the uh, energy all the economic sectors need um, addressing there was um a court case uh, interesting court case brought, brought last year by client earth and partners including friends of the earth which required the uk to produce a carbon budget delivery plan so the government to describe how it was going to meet these carbon budgets. And indeed, they published one in March this year, but um, it's been widely criticised as relying much too heavily on um, unproven and high risk technologies such as carbon capture and hydrogen and not on uh, near term action in doing stuff now. So I think um, particularly client Earth is going to seek a judicial review on that. 
recent government decisions on uh, the Cumbrian coal mine, on North Sea gas permits, the delay in the ban on fossil fuel car sales are all uh, very disappointing and not going to help at all. I think I'll leave it there. OK, thanks, Joe. That's a that's a really helpful um, overview of, of where we are and, 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 and what what needs to be done. Rosa, I'd like to come to you next. I mean, you've you've written for the IFG on the, the government's strategy and, and approach to to, 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 to to tackling climate change. Um, I mean, what's what's your assessment? What 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 is the state of the, the, the government's strategy? And in, in, in particular, what role does it see for local leaders in, in helping with decarbonisation and reaching net zero? Yeah, so I was thinking about this question of does it have a credible strategy? And the answer I came up with was sort of. Um, so at a very high level, as Joanna was saying, it's published this carbon budget delivery plan after the previous plan was challenged in court. And it sets out kind of these are the policies it sees using to hit net zero. But it's a very tight path. It really doesn't leave a lot of space at all for things going wrong or for kind of future changes in policy. So, for example, the announcement that we saw on a 20% exemption for fossil fuel boiler phase out, the Climate Change Committee said that had made really increased the risks of hitting net zero by 2050. So there is a strategy, but it really requires delivery to start at pace now. And at the moment, the pace of policy development and delivery is just not there, really, um, in terms of us hitting both 2050 and also the interim targets in 2030, which the Climate Change Committee has said it thinks it's unlikely that the UK is going to hit. When it comes to the role of local leaders, the government has said quite a lot on local authorities, which are already delivering some parts of this, particularly when you look at social housing retrofit, for example. Um, it said a lot less on mayors. Um, I had a quick look through the carbon budget delivery plan. I could only find two mentions of mayors in there compared to quite a few more mentions of local authorities. So I don't think it's been particularly clear on the role for either, but it's definitely said more about local authorities than about local leaders like mayors. Um, but the main thing I would say, both in terms of the government's overall strategy and in terms of the role of local leaders, is what what we kind of still need is more clarity about who the government sees doing what by when. So ideally, you'd like it to be kind of we've got seven years to 2030, we've got 27 years to 2050. These are the things we think need to be delivered. This is what we see being delivered by this group at this time so that then people had a sense of what they were being expected to deliver, what kind of support they were going to get to facilitate that and could kind of plan ahead for what um, they needed to be doing at what point. Great, thanks, thanks, Rosa. Um, okay, so uh, Shirley, I'd like to come to you now. I mean, we've we've heard already quite a bit about the the 2050 target. Greater London, the Mayor of London, has set a much more ambitious, maybe aspirational target of of making London a net zero city region by 2030. So so in just uh, seven years or so. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about? Well, that target and what the GLA uh, and, and the mayor and, and, and yourself are doing using devolved powers to try and make progress towards that, um, as I say, quite imminent deadline that um, that that you've set yourself of, of 2030. 
so I sort of agree with uh, with Joe and Rosa, I think, on 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 their analysis. Um, really, I think the the role of local mayors is absolutely critical um, and local leaders in, in delivery. Um, and what we're not getting is is clarity on um, the, the pathway, the 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 support, whether it's powers or, or funding. So in the absence of that, I think it is reliant on, on local leaders to take take up the mantle. Um, and that's what um, the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, has done. So, you know, he declared a climate emergency in 2018 and brought forward his target from 2050 for London to be a net zero carbon city to 2030, precisely because of the urgency of action that's, that's needed, uh, not just in the UK, but globally. Um, we're seeing the impacts of climate change already uh, in, uh, you know, around the world in, in the UK and in London, particularly, you know, people who, you know, may remember the, the sort of uh, extreme heat events, the, the wildfires that we saw destroying homes um, in, in, in London, um, flash flooding events, increasing frequency and severity of that. And, you know, and we we've been very lucky, I think, not to have had a, a really bad uh, sort of experience like New York has done where where we've seen sort of loss of life and 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 um, and so on but um so having said we want to bring forward our target you know we've done what um I think Rosa was talking about you know trying to understand what the challenge is um so we commissioned some research um to identify four scenarios that we might take to, to try to get to 2030 and, and the mayor has selected one uh, which looked at a sort of pragmatic approach but even that has you know just sets out the scale of the challenge we have to meet you know sort of 100 200,000 homes a year need to be retrofitted 26 and a half thousand commercial buildings have to be retrofitted we've got to connect up uh, you know heat pumps in the order of two to three million heat pumps by 2030 if we're going to do all of this let alone um, you know reducing vehicle kilometers so that we can cut transport emissions but you know having having identified that challenge you know we are all um, at the GLA and the um, associated organizations like Transport for London and working very closely with London local authorities through their uh, representative organization London councils are trying to come together on some of those big um, big challenges. Um, we don't have all the powers that um, that we need. So that the strongest powers that the mayor has has always been planning, then transport, and then over time, as as there has been some devolution, you know, we have some control over the education budget on skills, for example, housing as well. But you know, we don't have um, control, for example, over the ability to retrofit our homes or buildings in London. That you know the the sort of setting of energy efficiency standards and the ability to fund that is distributed and you know we have to go through this um ridiculous bidding um cycle that local authorities have to do with very little time changing of policy and then you know having to hand back funding so that you know there is no long-term sort of funding pot single funding pot clarity of policy that we can then just get on gone with it and obviously um local authorities understand much better you know what the needs are you know what you know what we need to do in London and the makeup of our city is going to be very different from from you know how Ed deals with um, issues in in the West Midlands you know with Andy um, the, but you know Sadiq always says it's the good news the good news is that um, you know even with the powers that we have we have made huge strides so on planning for example we were able to set tougher standards you know the, the government got did away with the i think it was the future homes standard or the equivalent of that we were able to retain that and we've seen because of that drive through the 
planning policy we've set in London, the London plan, mm. um, we've been delivering um, emissions reductions that are 50% greater than they're required by building regulations. And that's because we've set that long term policy um, and, and that set signal to developers who are bringing that forward with no, no, uh, you know, um, uh, no impact really on, on delivery of homes or, or buildings, in fact, on um, emissions, you know, we're seeing that, uh, you know, per capita emissions um, better than, than this UK, I think, um, partly because of the density and because we're also, you know, uh, because we have reliance on good public transport and so on, on um, vehicle reductions. We've seen through, for example, the expansion of the ultra low emission zone, uh, we've seen many thousands, uh, tens of thousands of vehicles coming off our road, which is going to help, um, you know, both air quality, but also climate change. Uh, we're cleaning up our buses. You know, we have, um, I think, something in the order of 1,200 buses uh, that are electric or hydrogen. We have a third of the UK's electric vehicle charging points. These are all policy driven within the gift of the sort of what we have. But we think that we could do much more if you know, those powers uh, and, and funding were devolved to, to local leaders, local mayors. OK, great. And uh, yeah, I definitely want to return shortly to that specific question of further devolution and, and, mm. and, and whether London is on the path for uh, a new devolution deal, which nice segue to the West Midlands. Um, so, 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 Ed, um, West Midlands also has a as an earlier net zero target 2041 um, in, in your case. Um, West Midlands has also recently concluded a, a further devolution deal, a trailblazer deal, as it's called, which will provide additional powers, um, potentially including some of those things that London doesn't have, like greater control of, of retrofitting, for example. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm interested to hear from you, first of all, I mean, what progress have you been able to make with the powers you already have or have had, you know, over the past few years? Um, in, in reducing emissions and then what do you think the the new powers coming on stream are going to enable you to to, to do that um, other places like London could could then learn from sure well thanks Akash I mean there's there's a lot lot going on and uh, there's not enough time to kind of cover it all off uh, in in just the short time we've got together so I will just give you a flavour but you're absolutely right um, we set a an evidence-based target similar to the way Shirley described uh, for Greater London of 2041 based on various scenarios uh, and then we've developed um, what's known as our five-year plan uh, so the first five years to 2041 and within that there are 15 goals um, so again all very evidence-based um, but then you have to look at those 15 goals and say well what is it that we can actually do and I think we see the role of the mayor and the combined authority um, as if you like a, a, a convener a leader uh, and I think it's really important just to make this point that we're not doing this for government sometimes we have conversations um, which sound as though the only reason local authorities or combined authorities get up in the morning is because government has given them some powers or given them something that they can do um, we're doing this because the West Midlands uh, has huge um, economic and environmental opportunities uh, and we're seeking to seize those the extent to which government helps us to do that I think 
uh, is highly contingent and you know we'll come back to that when we talk a bit more about about devolution but I think it's really important to say up front that as a political leader in his own right the mayor of the West Midlands is driving a low carbon uh, agenda because it is the right thing to do not because government says it's the right thing to do and indeed I'll make this point now that you know one of the constraints on devolution in relation to uh, decarbonisation is that the government consistently says well we've got legally binding targets and therefore can we trust you to do things and our argument would be well just pass on those legally binding targets to us and we will absolutely make the progress that we need to make. So just to give you a flavour of some of the areas in which we're working, um, transport obviously is a huge area as Shirley has referenced and um, we've just developing a new local transport plan that puts the decarbonisation absolutely at the centre of all of that. Specific projects like Coventry Electric Bus City, I think it's the first city to have 100% electric buses. Um, but you know the progress is slow, it's very very challenging to get people out of their cars, um, particularly when as a conurbation like the West Midlands, you know it's sort of the car conurbation in that sense. So there's some big challenges there, huge huge constraints on transport revenue funding as well. So that makes providing a public transport system that much more difficult in the current financial environment. On energy, um, we've got our own energy agency, Energy Capital, that have done some amazing work. We've got a regional energy strategy, uh, lots of innovation around heat networks, local area energy planning and that kind of mm -hmm. thing. Um, but again, critical strategic role that we play is in convening energy systems partners. Uh, we have something called the Net Zero Infrastructure Delivery Panel, the first region to pull together all of the providers, uh, the energy infrastructure companies onto one panel where we can hold them to account in a much greater way. And now Ofgem have seen that and said, right, uh, we need something called regional energy strategic planning. Uh, very invisible, not very retail politics, but something that's incredibly important and that makes possible the kind of announcement that the Chancellor made um, last week about connecting us, making making grid connections that much more effective for business. On domestic retrofit, um, huge amounts uh, there. I mean, the way in which government provides retrofit funding through these tiny competitions that all our different local authorities and registered providers have to bid for time and time again, with very narrow constraints, both in terms of the timescales to deliver, um, but also what it can be spent on, is incredibly difficult and certainly inhibits the market from developing. So what we've done as a combined authority is to try to convene um, registered providers, local authorities and put in um, you know, collaborative bids for government funding so we get the scale. Uh, so I think we've got £80 million worth of retrofit funding ongoing at the moment. That helps us then to shape the local market, to build the skills uh, and to, to, to really get that system going, but it's still very, very piecemeal. Um, we're also um, have a, a demonstrator program where what we're trying to do is what we call net zero neighbourhoods where we look at a whole range of different ways in which we can decarbonise in a particular neighbourhood hinging around retrofit and again I think government has seen that as an example of of how you can do this more systematically so as part of our trailblazer devolution deal now um, it looks as though we're going to have what they're describing as a retrofit pilot, which will mean that we can actually have five years worth of guaranteed funding around retrofit so that we can actually unlock some of that demonstrator approach and shape the market to a much, much greater effect. And of course, with the housing funding that we've got as well, we've got to make sure that we're building houses that aren't going to need retrofitting. So again, like Shirley, we've got a future home strategy, which uh, kind of ramps up the conditions upon which we 
um, can, can, can apply to developers who are wanting to build uh, new homes. Lots of work on environment and adaptation. I haven't got time to go through it all, uh, so I won't, don't, don't panic, but we've got a regional tree strategy. We've um, uh, helped plant half a million trees in the last um, 18 months or so. Uh, a regional climate adaptation strategy. We're doing lots of work on the circular economy. Uh, we have a roadmap around that. And we've just, the, the Command Authority Board has just published a regional air quality framework. So lots of work on air quality as well. A lot of that hinges around behaviour change. And again, it's where local leadership is so key because I think we can be a lot better at uh, unlocking behaviour change at that local level. So quite a lot of work on, you know, how do we how do we kind of publicise that? How do we work with citizens panels, a, a Green Together forum we've got and so on, on some of those issues. Last couple of things to say. Um, you know, public sector is really not going to be the one ultimately that drives the kind of changes that we need to see. I've mentioned the public and the role of behaviour change, but also our economy. And we see, um, you know, the drive to net zero as being a huge opportunity to unlock the green economy in the West Midlands. So that's a lot of the sort of drive behind this, the push behind this. And we've got three uh, high growth clusters in the West Midlands that are particularly focused on um, different aspects of the green economy, uh, one of which um, is around um, batteries and electrification uh, and our investment zone hangs that, that was announced last week hangs around the Coventry and Warwick Gigapark, which is very much fo focused on batteries and electrification. Um, we also recognise that um, our economy needs something slightly different. So a lot of the focus in terms of decarbonisation and the economy goes to the big producers of energy or the big users of energy, which are very often coastal. We're at the other end of the pipeline when it comes to energy use. Um, so for us, it's all about smart energy systems and distribution, and it's about small and medium sized enterprises and how they make the energy transition. And much government policy doesn't really address that those particular challenges. So we have to have our own economic strategy as to how we help businesses transition uh, and government I think is starting to get aware of that and then finally just to mention green finance because all of this needs paying for um, and so we're doing quite a lot of work in the uh, kind of green finance space there are other combined authorities doing similar putting together funds trying to put together projects and pipelines of projects so that private investors can come in and invest at scale and we've had limited success I have to be honest on that front. It's very difficult. I still think that um, private sectors and, and, the, and the investor market, so to speak, is still needing stronger signals from national government to be able to feel comfortable to invest. But what we can do in the region, we are doing. Um, and I think we've got some sort of small indications of success on that front. So I'll finish where Shirley finished. You know, so much more that we could do if more was devolved to us. Um, but through the trailblazer devolution deal, I think we're heading in the right direction now. And it remains to be seen whether um, Desens are really prepared to kind of open up some of that um, opportunity, if you like, that is created through the trailblazer devolution deal, particularly around retrofit, uh, to see what more we can do uh, in order to prove that uh, Merrill Combined Authorities um, can, can address climate change alongside national government. Great, thank you, Ed. Certainly a lot going on in the West Midlands. And uh, yeah, we'll be watching the implementation of the, the Trailblazer deal and the, that further transfer of powers to West Midlands and, and Greater Manchester as well, very closely. Um, Shirley, I wanted to come back to you, though, on, on this on this uh, question. I mean, you're obviously watching closely what, what's happening in 
these other city regions. What would you like to see uh, change in terms of the, the powers of the Mayor of London and the GLA? And is that on the cards? I mean, are you having those negotiations in any way with government, which, you know, seems open to devolution to, to other parts of the country, but, but London has not really been part of the conversation recently, it seems. The focus has been on helping other places to, to catch up with London. Yeah, it does feel a little bit like a, a one-sided conversation. We've certainly been making the case for a long time that um, if you, you know, devolution is good, good for the country. It's good for, for our ability to deliver in our city. And then what we do in London does help benefit, um, you know, other parts of the of the country. You know, for one example is the, 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 the very long term ask of a long term capital funding settlement for Transport for London. Um, and we've been making the case about um, that ability to have that um, devolved would then give us long term certainty to bring in the investment that Ed has talked about, but also plan. Um, and then that benefits um, the supply chain, um, the bulk of which is outside of London. So three quarters of that, I think, of those um, jobs and supply chain and companies are outside of London. So, you know, the the, the sort of Siemens trains or the Alstom trains, or um, even as you go down to, to even smaller, the SME manufacturers outside will benefit from that investment. And because we can't um, um, plan, you know, we have to go through this churn of, um, as we are doing at the moment, you know, sort of relooking and waiting for government to opine so that we can then uh, work out what can we do. And then because they don't give us the information, then we have to spend a lot of time reprioritizing and then keep keep that negotiation. Um, we would love to have a long term funding settlement around retrofit. We've been making that case for a long time. You know, all of us, many local authorities, you know, going through this sort of stop, start, flip flop. Um, bidding regime, you know, it's a lot of time and um, uh, from officers spent on um, on these schemes. And then um, again, for the supply chain, for people to to even understand uh, and have the confidence to train and skill up people to, you know, for, for, for companies to invest, you know, they don't want to do that. They've seen and they've been burnt by by uh, examples in the past, the Green New Deal, for example, where, where things were pulled. Uh, and we've seen the, you know, we've experienced the impacts of that because, you know, um, our homes are not fit for purpose for energy efficiency, let alone indeed for, for you know, adapting to the impacts of climate change that we're seeing now. And, that you know, whilst we talk about net zero, we really shouldn't be forgetting that we need to be adapting our, our um cities, our homes, our businesses to the impacts of climate change that we're already seeing. And, and that's a really big issue too, that, you know, devolution would would help. Um, in London, for example, we've been, you know, we've had a, an adaptation strategy for many years and fed that, uh, those sort of policies through the London plan and various other things. But we've asked um, Emma Howard Boyd to chair a, um, a sort of review, uh, a London Climate Resilience Review to understand um, you know, um, the preparedness or not, you know, where do we need to to really amp up um, work in London to to be more resilient? A lot of that, however, is dependent on government setting standards, setting strategies, which they keep punting on, um, which is affecting us in London, businesses in London and, and putting people at risk, you know, um, communities at risk as well. Um, on, um, you know, so I've talked about um, 
transport a devolution deal there. Housing retrofit, absolutely, as, as you know, Ed's talked about that for that five year guaranteed funding. That would be fantastic. So we're working with London councils to develop a, a sort of um, a view on what we could do collectively to deliver a, a sort of improved retrofit delivery model, what that would take and then how that would help in terms of skills. Um, you know, we've, we've done the analysis in terms of the sort of um, green economy and the jobs in London. It's worth, you know, it's a huge sector, 50 billion uh, worth in sales. And we have an ambition to double that by 2030. Um, but we need um, that certainty of funding and powers in order to be able to do that. We can carry on and we'll grow that, but it won't be at the pace um, or at the scale that's needed to really meet this challenge by 2030, let alone 2050. Okay, terrific. Thanks for that. Um, okay, so uh, Rosa, I want to come back to you. I mean, we've 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 heard from from both Shirley and Ed about what's going on at the devolved level, how further devolution um, could maybe help those those places to to, to move faster. Um, what what do you think national government um, could do to better enable local leaders to 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 lead on this agenda but also the flip side of that question is where are the limits of devolution i mean what are the things that central government has to get right at that national level yeah so i mean i think ed and shirley have set it out really well on kind of both halves of that question so in terms of what central government can do to better support local leaders i think policy certainty, funding certainty are the real key ones. Like they were saying, you it's so hard to build up those supply chains when you've got policy flip-flopping. Um, if when you look at housing retrofit, particularly, we've had so many different schemes over the last few years. Um, you hear from businesses, well, why would we engage with that scheme? The last one didn't work. It might only last six months. They don't want to scale up and the assumption that a scheme will last if it's not necessarily going to last. I think that's really, really important. And similarly, kind of long term funding settlements, being able to know that you have X amount of funding for a certain period and you can really actually plan what you're going to do there. I think both of those are the really key things. Um, and in terms of what kind of only central government can do, I think, again, it's the kind of setting an overall strategy, setting standards and then coordinating. Um, you need central government to say this is how we see us getting to net zero as a country as a whole. And then within that, what they're expecting local areas to do, you can't. You need someone doing that kind of overall picture um, in order to facilitate facilitate local areas to then do their parts of it. OK, thanks. And um, I'm, I can see lots of questions coming in from the audience, which is great. Um, I'll come to those in a moment. Before that, one, one final question for you, Joe. Um, I mean, we've we've heard um, quite a lot about reducing carbon emissions and so on. A couple of mentions also of uh, adaptation to the effects of climate change. And, and I want to ask you specifically about, about that. I mean, what do you see as the the role for for local leaders in ensuring that that places are able to adapt to the effects of of, of climate change. Yes, because it used to be 20 years ago that we didn't talk about adaptation because it was sort of suggested that in that way you'd failed to meet the challenge of um, not doing the emissions. But now it's very clear <coughs> we're in the midst of all these climate change and weather effects and we need to have adaptation. 
Um, and there's opportunities right across all areas of policy. We've already heard about planning decisions <coughs> that need to be compatible with net zero. Um, a new infrastructure that needs to be built at the same time resilient to current and future climate hazards. Uh, that will be um, essential. Many sectors can benefit from uh, an, an adaptive planning approach where sort of no regrets options are pursued um, to current climate impacts, but also um, avoid a lock in to unsustainable measures. measures. There's um, on the positive side, there's um, the co-benefits of acting on climate change. And actually, there's very little that you can do on climate change that doesn't have co-benefits. So um, we've already heard from Ed about the, the green economy and, and the co-benefits to economy and jobs and that sort of side of things of um, acting on climate change. But, but also, for example, if you reduce fossil fuels, um, both in industry and in transport and improve air quality, that has an immediate effect on um, you know lung disease and, and uh, especially in, in urban areas. And also climate change um, action can affect many other areas of life. So um, if you do things like plant more trees, um, it will make make life better. Um, and um, as I said, I don't think as much you can do on on climate change, it doesn't improve health. So active travel is another thing. If, you, if you're walking or cycling rather than going in the car, then you're going to be more healthy. So I think um, all of these things are good. Um, the other side of adaptation is that it, it typically delivers high benefit to cost ratios. So it's you, you have to put a bit of investment in, but then you can see the benefits partly in terms of health requirements and things go down and other needs go down. So the benefits are bigger than just the, the climate ones. I'll leave it there. Yes, great. I think that's a, that's a really important point. Um, OK, cool. So let's uh, let's bring in some questions from from the audience. There's there's lots of interesting points coming in. Um, I'd like to start with a question from uh, Jacob Coburn from the Young Foundation, who asks, what role can local leaders play in ensuring that people are not left behind from the transition, uh, especially in recognising those that are most vulnerable um, and the development of policy and provision that that can reduce these risks? Um, so who would like to pick that one? I'm sure, Shirley, um, do you have thoughts on that question? Yeah, sure. Um, it, it's absolutely critical. So when, when Sadiq talks about um, our work, he talks about uh, social justice a lot and and you know that the jargon of just transition um, but this is absolutely core to to what we're trying to do at the GLA so on um, you know all of our policies we look to see um, understand what what the impacts are on on uh, communities in London and who are you know who may be more disadvantaged um, and how we might then mitigate that or redesign co-design the policies to make sure that they don't. Um, we have, um, for example, um, done some mapping in London uh, with the assistance of Bloomberg Associates to um, map the, um, for example, the, the sort of areas in London which are more likely to be affected by climate impacts, overlaying that with levels of deprivation, exposure to air pollution, so that we, you know, we're able to use that to understand where are the areas of London that, that may need more targeting in terms of our funding and using that for some of our programmes at the GLA already and, and trying to get others in London also 
to to use this. So, so for example, some of our programs on uh, tree planting and 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 um, creating and supporting green spaces, for example, in some of our neighbourhood regeneration programs, um, specifically on on how do we make sure that um, people um, are not disadvantaged. So again, some of our um, programs where we help. Um, entrepreneurs and, and sort of SMEs, we we there's a program called Better Futures where we uh, certainly um, and it came into its own really during um, the pandemic pandemic where we we provided funding to help people who are uh, who were um, single businesses basically to uh, with the support and training that they needed to, to keep going during the pandemic and then to help them to recover and, and sort of grow and that's really targeted at um, female owners um, and people from the black Asian minority ethnic communities and so on and so that's very successful and then a third example I'd give is we've got a program called Future Neighbourhoods 2030 so using um, We've identified two um, two areas in London, you know, so it was through a bidding programme, one in Somerstown in Camden and one in um, in Kensington and Chelsea, Nottingdale, where two estates, um, high levels of deprivation, but um, where they came forward saying we wanted to um, co-design strategies and it was led by the local community. So it was very clear and it was part of the, the bidding programme that it wasn't led by a local authority and then done to local people. It was really what do they want to see? What do they understand to be the challenges? And they've worked with the local authorities and others in the area to co-design um, programmes and they're um, implementing you know, a huge range of um, initiatives and projects to really show what, what a, a sort of a a neighbourhood that is uh, climate resilient, um, net zero uh, by 2030 could look like. And this covers a whole host of issues from um, greening, uh, electric vehicle charging, retrofitting homes, zero waste type uh, initiatives. Um, so these are really trying to give people agency. We understand it's very difficult for some communities to to get involved and get, you know, uh, you know, are not the sort of traditional recipients. So how do we make sure that they are able to access that funding and that often is starts with the criteria but also there's a lot of work that our communities team um, do to, to get out there and, and really encourage you know a whole host of people whether it's young people all the way through to to faith communities to get engaged and certainly we have in London um, um, we developed this during the, the pandemic of London Recovery Board where we brought all the agencies together, whether it was the GLA, the Transport for London, the NHS, um, other anchor institutions like universities. But on that grouping, we have Business London, um, we have members of faith communities and we have uh, members of the youth board, youth panel as well. So we get those voices from um, around London. That's now um, morphed into a London partnership board where again we have a number of um, areas of work missions that we're working on. The one that I'm, I'm working on is the Green New Deal mission, but there are others around uh, safety and security, economic recovery, um, mental health and so on. So getting that um, multi-agency sort of input uh, from people and then they they bring in the perspectives from others as well. Great. OK, thanks. Um, all right. Another question then to come in from uh, Martin Wheatley, uh, which I was going to put to to you, Rosa. Um, so Martin notes that uh, well, more than 15 years ago, uh, Kirklees and other councils showed the effectiveness of a council led street by street approach to domestic retrofit. And his question is, why has central government 
been so resistant to unlocking the potential of councils to meet this big net zero challenge for which there isn't, in his view, a credible national approach at the moment. So, yeah, I mean, what, 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 why are we seeing, if if you agree with that premise, um, this this caution on the part part of central government to to let local places lead on this agenda? Yeah, I saw that question. I think it's a really interesting one. Um, the short answer is I don't really know. Um, I think. Uh, mm -mm. Oh. Ed seems like he might know. <laughs> Would you like to come in, Ed? <laughs> I was going to come back to Ed in a minute. Um, you carry on, Rosa. I'll, I'll come in after you. OK, um, so what I was going to say was I think the government has started taking more of this approach. So if you look at the Social Housing Decarbonisation Fund, which um, was brought in, I think, around the same time as the Green Homes Grant, but has been significantly more successful, I would say in part because it's been working much more closely with local authorities um, rather than kind of a very centrally designed and controlled scheme. Um, and in that one, they have been working much more closely with local authorities on like doing social housing in chunks. Um, and that seems to have been more effective. Um, so I would kind of hope that they're looking at the lessons that they can learn from that and seeing how they could kind of apply that more widely. Yeah. OK, thanks. Well, I mean, as Ed was talking about before, the, the, the new trailblazer includes this this pilot. So there is there is a there, that degree of appetite to test out more locally led approaches and, and to, to, to learn from them. Um, Ed, I, I, I'll let you respond on that specific point. But the other question I wanted to put to you um, specifically has come in from Janine at Lancaster University, who notes that Lancashire um, has just announced a new devolution deal, as indeed there were four new devolution deals announced last week. There's a few others being implemented over the next year or two. So there's a, there's a whole bunch of places basically following in the footsteps of, of places like West Midlands, Greater Manchester, etc. The question is, is there a framework in place for sharing lessons between local authorities or, or combined authorities and, and what could they learn from your net zero journey in the West Midlands? I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, the Institute for Government has has often made the case that one of the benefits of devolution is or at least should be that it creates this laboratory for experimentation and testing out different um, different ways to, to solve common problems. But you then do need to have the framework and um, systems in place, perhaps to to, to learn from those experiments and, and share the lessons. So does that exist at the moment, I suppose, is the question. Sure. Um, well, I'll come to I will come to that question, but there's actually a link between the two questions that um, that we're that we're we're asking because one of the main reasons that um, the Department of Energy Security and Net Zero have given for not wanting to devolve retrofit in particular and other net zero funds is that there is no proof that local authorities or combined authorities can do it better, and it's one of those impossible conundrums that we're in um, because the reason there is no proof is because they've never tried it and this is why the um, 
retrofit pilot as it's being described as part of the devolution deal is actually part of the wider single settlement, the block grant funding that's going to come to Greater Manchester and to the West Midlands uh, at the next spending review. It is why it's, it, it's, it's described very much as a pilot is in order to explore an experiment and to demonstrate that this kind of neighbourhood based approach or other approaches to retrofit will um, be, be more effective than the, the centralised approach that we've got um, at the moment. So the onus is always on combined authorities to prove that we can do things better. Um, and Janine then is right to be asking, so how is that information shared and how does that work? Um, I'll be fairly frank here. I think that uh, we could do a lot better. I think that um, the M10, as it's known, the, 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 the network of mayoral combined authorities, of which there are now far more than 10, um, do their best to share information uh, and to share progress. And there is a, a network of um, those working on net zero within the combined authorities that meet on a regular basis. Government has set up something called the Local Net Zero Forum. Um, which is uh, largely a process by which uh, government civil servants try to manage us all. Uh, so there's not too much information sharing there, but um, uh, instead what we're doing is saying, look, we can prove to you that we can do things differently and do things better if you devolve more through that forum um, as well. And I think it's also worth just flagging that some of the think tanks, uh, including Institute for Government, are doing really good work as well to try to uh, get us to share some of the work that we're doing in combined authorities and that can be made accessible. Even a session like today, I hope, uh, to some extent is addressing uh, some of the concerns that Janine uh, flags. Can I just make one more comment going back to the previous question about sort of blockages. One of the key things that keeps getting raised in this space by national government is that they have legally binding targets. Therefore, they cannot trust anybody or pass them on at all. And this is, I think, symptomatic of um, a kind of wider problem we've got with the way in which government is constructed in, in the UK, which is this sense that ministers have to be held responsible for every fine last detail of whether a particular house gets retrofitted or not, etc, etc. Uh, and actually, it's a sort of immature form of national governance. And really, you know, we need to be able to find ways. And we have said as West Midlands Combined Authority, we would be happy to take on some of those legally, bind legally binding targets. We are prepared to work within a, a carbon budget if there is a quid pro quo, that then we have greater means to set policy for ourselves and the funding to deliver it. So I do think there is a different way of doing this altogether, um, but it is it requires central government to get over its kind of highly centralised ministerial responsibility kind of focus that at the moment uh, is, is, is so inhibiting. Yeah, thanks. And 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 that, that can be a bit of a, a, a vicious circle, can't it? That um, that 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 sense of we are responsible, therefore we can't devolve, and therefore we must, um, yeah, um, hold ourselves responsible, keep ourselves responsible for for these things. Um, okay, so uh, question for for you, Joe. Um, so John Balance uh, has put in the chat um, the following. So he says that you you mentioned Joanna mentioned that agriculture and land use are poorly dealt with in the overall government plan. Um, and he maybe quite rightly notes, we haven't spoken so much about this on this panel, perhaps because we don't have representatives of, of rural areas um, around the table, so to speak, today. So I just wondered if you wanted to say a bit more about 
um, about that aspect of 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 the climate agenda and um, well, what what does need to happen and 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 also that balance between central and local roles. If you have thoughts on that. Yes, so um, in, I'm a climate physicist, I'm not an expert on agriculture. I, I brought that up because that's one of the things that the Climate Change Committee said was particularly lacking in terms of um, planning. Um, but I'm aware there's a lot of work going on in trying to reduce carbon emissions from agricultural practices, um, particularly from um, farming of meat, beef and lamb, in, in terms of how to reduce emissions from that how to reduce emissions from particular plants. So uh, rice paddy fields give off a lot of methane, for example, and there's research going on into that. Um, and also um, the whole transport thing, how you can use uh, local produce and not um, be moving it around all over the country by, particularly by fossil fuel driven vehicles, of course. So it, there's a lot of work going on um, and it just requires some people to take notice. Great. Um, OK, so we've got about five more minutes left, so I'm keen to put another couple of questions um, to the panel. Um, I mean, there's one question I think. Ed has responded in the chat, but others won't have seen it about um, Scotland and Wales, which have substantially more um devolved powers than than any of england cities and regions and certainly have greater uh, certainty over funding and so on i mean does it does anyone on the panel have uh reflections on what that has enabled those devolved governments to do that that maybe parts of england are not currently able to do so much surely i think i saw you nodding there do you want to pick that question up yeah there's uh, you know th there are loads loads of examples i think but probably one um I pick up on is on uh, recycling and and waste management and the move to the circular economy. So, you know, we've had a, another delay to the the government's reforms in England for waste management. Um, there's yet another consultation, which means that so, for example, in London, you know, we have 33 different um, collection and recycling um, approaches, which the mayor, through the limited powers we have, have been trying to encourage. Um, uh, a move to 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 some standardisation of policies so that people moving from one borough to another in London can expect to always get um, a certain level of recycling and these things will be recycled. But yet they're still different. Um, in 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 the uh, in Wales, they have been able to go ahead and set policies, which has really driven up their recycling rate. So whilst everywhere in in the country, um, certainly in England, you know, our, our recycling rate has been flatlining for many years, just holding its own. Whereas I think the rest of England's recycling rate has been falling. Um, theirs has been increasing, and you know they are really focused on on um, the sector economy. So again, whilst we are pushing ahead and doing what we can do within London. We have a, an agency with with the boroughs called ReLondon that does a lot of work in this area, trying to sort of set out best practice guidance and, and communications campaigns to, to try and promote some some greater action on this. Without that, again, that devolution, um, you can't really understand what's needed in, in your uh, region and then push ahead. Um, and I think, you know, there are a lot of things that we've lost uh, over the years, you know, in in planning terms, for example, we there used to be um, a southeast regional planning authority, so we would work very closely with our planning authorities around London, so that there would be um, some collaboration, coordination on on action. That uh, that was um, 
um, dissolved so uh, you know that that doesn't exist anymore so there's sort of there isn't really a venue to do some of those things so um so yeah absolutely um i think we'd love love some of those those powers i think hmm. okay um great well right. i think uh yeah time for maybe one or two, maximum two more questions so so rosa here's a question i was going to put to you so robert moreland has asked whether local authorities could be doing much more to encourage residents to take action towards net zero. And I suppose that's the, the, the way I was going to ask a similar question that I think we were chatting about in the office the other day, um, was whether local leaders, whether it's mayors or council leaders, are typically better placed to to build consent and to engage citizens in in for, for making the changes that might need to be made. Um, so I wonder what your thoughts are on that, including what the UK might be able to learn from other places, which I know is something you've looked at as well. In terms of, I, I think I might put it differently, rather than encouraging residents to take action, I might try to think of it more in terms of helping residents to take action. So I know that one thing that we've seen looking at other what other countries are doing um, and I think here Greater Manchester has has piloted it as well as having a one-stop shop so kind of a one place online that residents in an area can go to find out information about retrofitting um, find trusted suppliers to kind of not necessarily encourage it but particularly facilitate that so try and make it as easy as possible for local residents to take action so if you can afford to retrofit your home making it as easy as possible for you to do that and giving you the assurance that you're not going to get a cowboy builder who does it terribly and I think that local leaders are potentially kind of in a better place to do that than central government because you can kind of build up that trust locally with residents um, and you're potentially in closer contact and so I think there is definitely scope to kind of facilitate that helping people to make actions as well as encouraging them to but particularly making it easier I think is the kind of key thing there. OK, great. Well, there's absolutely loads more we, we could uh, talk about. I know there's a number of really interesting questions we've not been able to get on to. Apologies for that. But the Institute for Government will be continuing to uh, follow research and hopefully hold more events on this topic and wider both devolution and net zero uh, debates over over the coming years. So so please do join us again. Um, just remains for me to say Thank you very much to our excellent panel for, for all their insights and for taking the time to join us. Thank you to everyone for watching and thank you in particular to the Royal Society who uh, made this event possible. Um, and uh, yeah, that's all from, from us here at the Institute for Government. Goodbye.